1: Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each week, my goal is straightforward, to introduce you to key government executives and thought leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. To complement these examples of leadership in action, I also highlight the practical, actionable research done by some of the most recognized and respected thought leaders. Whether government leaders or thought leaders, our guests join us for an informative, insightful and in-depth conversation. I have dedicated a series of shows, exploring the qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset leaders from all sectors may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. The authors and thinkers presented in this series, offer insights and advice applicable to all sectors, including the public sector. It is from this rich library that I've culled together their insights on leading through uncertain times. First up, how important is cultivating a certain mindset? And what qualities are essential for leaders to possess during tumultuous times? Confronted by disruptive change, such as the pandemic and the subsequent economic turbulence, Many of today's leaders find themselves ill-equipped to manage the hazards they now face. Leaders today need to be grounded, and author Bob Rosen joined me on the show to explain the importance of being a grounded leader. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. So what does it mean uh, to be grounded, and why
2: is being rooted so important in your concept of leadership? Well, if you think of all of these disruptors as winds of change— The challenge is not to be blown over, and so I like to use the metaphor of a tree and a tree in a windstorm, and when that wind influences the tree, the branches go all over the place, but what keeps the tree rooted are its roots. It's grounded. It's grounded in the soil. And it's very important for people to stay grounded. Now, there are three responses to all these disruptors. One is to uh, live with what I call too little anxiety. You, You have your head in the sand. You're too complacent. You pretend they don't exist. A second one is that you're overwhelmed in a very chaotic way with a lot of stress from these disruptors. And the third is that you understand them, you anticipate them, and you use them to your personal and organizational advantage. And that's what great leaders do.
1: So, you know, um, you identify six personal dimensions uh, of a grounded leader. Um, I'd like you to just give us a high-level overview of each Just identify them, and then I'm going to pass it off to Nicole to kind of delve into each
2: one. Okay. Um, Each one represents a response to each of the disruptors. So the pace of speed is requiring all of us to be more physically rooted, Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but you have to be agile. Uh, The second one is our emotional roots, and that is in the face of uh, uncertainty, and impermanence, and our emotional roots are how we feel. Our intellectual roots are how we think, and that is a response to how we think and adapt in the face of complexity. Um, Our social roots are how we relate and connect to each other, and that is in response to technology and the pace of change and disruption. The fifth one is our vocational roots. We don't talk very much about our vocational roots. And our vocational roots have to do with how do we learn, how do we perform, how do we succeed, and how do we find meaning? in our work. And our spiritual roots, and I distinguish it from religion, our spiritual roots are how we interact with the world. What is our view of the world? And this is very important. In fact, it's the greatest predictor to leadership performance, which, which, which we can get into a little later. But all six operate like an interconnected holistic system. So you got to get all of them roughly right to thrive in this disruptive environment.
0: So fascinating. So in that context, and in the context of the dynamism of today, speed, you talked about complexity and uncertainty, why is grounded leadership the foundation to becoming a transformational leader?
2: Well, if you think of what I just described, um, many of us are stuck with an old mind in a new world order with the disruptors. And so we have to really focus on being grounded and being conscious. Um, I wrote Grounded, and in my mind, it's sort of the foundation for everything that we do, those six roots. But then you have to bring energy, you have to bring change, you have to bring adaptation to the foundation. And that's what being conscious is, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, So grounded and conscious are really the framework for team leadership, for change leadership, for growth leadership, for cultural leadership, for global leadership. We have to get the inside right before we can lead outside. Um, Now, one of the nice things about the disruptors is, and I'm a big believer, that you have to do inside out and outside in. Many leadership programs don't take into account how the world is changing. So we have to do both simultaneously. But inside out is so important. You you bring up consciousness. And I want to get a sense of what is
1: conscious leadership and how does it relate to Nicole's point about transformational leaders?
2: I think about conscious leadership as, um, as being aware, being awake. Being conscious of yourself, being aware of other people, and being aware of the environment or the context in which we're operating and those disruptors. Um, But many of us are too shallow um, in our thinking about ourselves. We're not necessarily introspective and principled. Um, We're too narrow in our perspective about the world. We don't understand the the larger context that we operate in. We're too safe and we don't take risks and we're too small. We're not bold and purposeful in our actions. And so in this new world order, we need leaders to go deep inside themselves. We need them to think big about possibilities. We need them to uh, get real about um, what they're good at and what they're not, what their hijackers are, and what do they want to put their their foot on the pedal for, and to step up and be bold. And that's the kind of leaders that we need at every level of organizations. So I like the title, uh, the working title of this new book is called Um, Conscious is the new smart. Many of us grew up to believe that being the smartest kid in the room was the aspiration, was the goal. And I don't think that's right anymore. It's necessary, but it's not good enough. We have to be conscious. We have to be aware in order to thrive in this new disruptive and accelerating world.
0: So those are some really important uh, tools that you just pointed out. Is there anything else that can help leaders today face some of their toughest challenges? Yeah, there are a couple. One is
2: um, to always seek feedback, to create a feedback loop inside yourself and and not be threatened by asking people how you're doing, because ultimately that will continue to refresh your self-awareness. Another thing is to create your own leadership story, which we talked about before. Third is that I think we need to double and triple up on our education and developmental experiences. The world's just changing way too fast for us to stay static. Um, I think another one is to um, be self-compassionate and confident and resilient. And then the last one is a principle that I borrow from Buddhism but I love, which is the principle of committed detachment. Okay, It's very important to be committed to goals, but it's also very important to be detached from the outcomes – And people get tripped up when they set really hairy goals and they don't always get what they want in life and in business. And so you can be a great leader by being committed to your purpose and your goals but become more detached from the outcomes because you don't control all the variables. And that's a really important psychological principle for being conscious and grounded as a human being.
1: That's great. So what does it mean to assert that who you are – drives what you do. And why is viewing leadership from this perspective
2: so different than the typical approaches to leadership we see today? Well, we grew up in a paradigm that said that what you do defines who you are. And we look at people in the way they present to each other, their behavior. We teach competencies and skills in our leadership frameworks. And I think that is too superficial. It's not getting to the outcomes that we want. We need to flip the paradigm upside down and say that who you are as a human being drives what you do. The reality is that no matter how you act, people have an intuitive sense of who you are as a human being based on your values and your principles. So let's just change the paradigm. And that's really what Grounded is all about. Um, it's about focusing on who you are first and foremost. You are somebody who is exhibiting or not exhibiting those six roots. Um, now, why is this important? Well, I come to the table with a philosophy, and it's, it's grounded in Buddhist philosophy that basically says we each come into the world with an innate wisdom innate humanity, an innate compassion, an innate um, intellectual wisdom. And over our life, we create motes of fear around ourselves because we get scared. And those basic fundamental goodness about people get sort of shackled or blinded. And so we lose our best self in the process of living in a complex world. And so my belief is that a lot of leadership development is rewiring the human mind from living a life in fear. And, you know, arrogance is is caused by fear. Um, it's the fear of not being special, of not being recognized, um, to living a life of love. It's about making your mind more conscious, when in fact, of what goes on in our minds is unconscious and 98% of all of our actions and beliefs and behaviors are driven by unconscious thoughts. So the more that you can make your unconscious mind conscious and aware, you're in more control of yourself in the world. I think thirdly is to move from being driven by your hijackers to being motivated by your accelerators. And then lastly, The result is that you come to the world with negative energy or positive energy as a result of being motivated by love, being conscious, and putting your foot on the accelerators. That's what's been missing in leadership development, is focusing on who we are as human beings.
1: How can one become a mindful leader? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, leading through uncertain times. Leadership pioneer Peter Drucker said, you cannot manage other people unless you manage yourself first. In the mind of a leader, co-author Jacqueline Carter calls for leaders to be human first, to be mindful and selfless, and in doing so to develop the qualities that enable engagement, fulfillment, and meaning, which leads to greater success. Carter elaborates on what it means to be a mindful leader. She joined me on the show and here's an excerpt of our conversation. As you were putting a book together, and I know you you and your co-author did a lot of research on this book, but I'm wondering what are some of the key challenges that you have seen in, in developing your work that leaders face today?
3: Yes. It was actually one of the reasons why we wrote the book, because we've been working, so with Potential Project, we've been working with leaders for over the past decade. And what we really saw is that over the last two or three years, that leadership, quite honestly, it's getting really tough to be a leader today. And I think any of the listeners can probably relate to this. But a combination of, you know, first of all, we know that the world is changing so quickly. There's not an industry, and it's really quite amazing, there's not an industry that is isn't facing some kind of technology disruption. In addition to that, we know that we're inundated with distractions. We're working in environments where we're on all the time, which is actually not good for the brain, which we can focus on in a little bit. But we're inundated with distractions and also, I think that you know we know that in terms of the next generation the, of, of workers, they're not necessarily as committed or as loyal as we might have been. I know in my early days, in when I started with Deloitte Consulting many years ago, I was so happy to have that job and have that role, and I wanted to stay for as long. I worked late. I didn't mind, and I think now... Quite rightly, I think, because I think it's a human characteristic, but workers today, they have a lot more opportunity. They have a lot more flexibility. They can work from their living room and work for any company in the world. So they – good good talent, I think, and everybody knows this. They're looking to say, well, what do you actually have for me? And so I think that we're seeing that in the engagement scores. And you take all of these factors, and in addition to that, we know that a lot of organizations are focused very much on short-term results. So the quarterly earnings reports get a lot of pressure. I think that you combine all of those things, and I think it's just more difficult for leaders today to be successful than it was even 5, 10 years ago.
1: So your book, The Mind of the Leader, explains how by applying these qualities that you just noted, mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion, first to yourself, then to the people you lead, and then to your ultimately to your organization, will lead to extraordinary results. Um, I'd like to go through each one of these different mental qualities that you talked about. And first, Why is it critically important and almost foundational to understand how you lead and who you are?
3: I think that uh, when we looked at a lot of leadership development programs today, they will start with external factors Mm -hmm. like how good you are at strategy or how good you are at marketing or how good you are at finance. All really important qualities. But it's kind of like building a house and starting with a roof. If you don't fundamentally understand who you are and how you show up, and most importantly, and this is really the mind of the leader, gets into how your mind actually works, then you're really missing out on the opportunities to be able to dive deeper into how you want to show up. What is your vision for yourself as a leader? What are the values that are important to you? And Based on those values and that vision that you have for yourself of what kind of leader you want to be, how can you actually make sure that you work towards achieving those? And I think specifically for a lot of leaders, what we saw is that what got you here won't get you there. Mm -hmm. So leaders who are really successful rising up through the ranks in their career, they get to this inflection point where all of those great things that they were really good at, maybe they were really good at, you know, strategy or maybe they were a creative type or maybe they were really good at engineering. And when they get put in that that one leadership role where now they actually have to get others to be creative, others to be able to develop the projects and tools and systems, it takes a different mind. And so to start with understanding your own mind and understanding your own journey and what you need to do, that's really why we see starting with the mind is the critical path for leaders to be able to develop into the kind of leader they want to be.
1: Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, in your book, um, you come up with the MSC leadership uh, model, as I would like to refer to it, and obviously mindfulness is is the first quality, and you talked a little bit about it earlier, but I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't delve a little deeper. What is mindfulness, and how does it relate to managing, really managing one one's attention? And what are the two qualities that make mind, mindfulness happen? Right,
4: for a
3: better way of putting it. Yeah. So basically, mindfulness. The simplest definition is being here now. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to being unfocused, as opposed to being distracted, which is the first quality. So this quality of being focused, being fully present. Mm -hmm. The second quality of being aware. And really what awareness means is I'm aware of what's going on in my external landscape, but really being aware of what's going on in my internal landscape so that I'm not just falling um, into habits and habitual behaviors. And I'm also, to the extent that I can be, and that's a really important phrase, to the extent that I can be, aware of how I might be driven by ego biases, what we, which you talked about earlier, or other biases, which we know so many of our biases are based on, unconscious ways that our brain tells us, that person doesn't look like you, you should be afraid of them, and we have to be able to overcome that. So what mindfulness actually does is mindfulness enables you to be present with your own mind and to be able to have the opportunity to cultivate greater focus so that your mind isn't susceptible to wandering, which our minds naturally wander, but in our workplaces, it's even worse. And then secondly, the mindfulness training, and there's two different types of training that you do to develop focus as opposed to the other type of training, which is to really be able to open your awareness to the landscape of what's going on in your mind. Mm-hmm.
1: So how is self-awareness almost foundationally, or how, how, how is it the foundation of self-leadership? I mean, why is that the case?
3: Well, and I would say it really probably speaks to both focus and awareness. One, if I'm not focused, so one of the things we talked about and we really saw with the successful leaders is this idea of survival of the focused. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, if you are not focused, and most of the leaders that we met, they were pretty darn good at focusing. But in addition to that, focus is not just about being able to focus on one thing and not multitask, which is a big part of why we, many people are in and, a effect,
1: problem, and a big, big problem point out, which i thought was fascinating
3: exactly but in addition to that this idea of mental agility so being able to shift your focus right we talked about the complexity and why leaders are facing such challenging times today what we really saw is leaders that could be agile in terms of how they shifted their focus I'm here, now I'm here. That was amazing to us. And I think a really, and it's trainable. So that's really that quality of not just focus, but mental agility. But I would say in terms of self-awareness, the other thing, and just to give you another example of that, you know, self-awareness, one of the other CEOs that we spoke with, Mara McCaffrey, who is the CEO of Health New England, a health um, insurance agency. And what mindfulness really helped her do is she was able to start to see that oftentimes when she would walk into a leadership team meeting, she would be so enthusiastic about what she wanted to do and what she thought the organization should do that she left everybody else behind. Interesting. And so, but but she couldn't understand it because as a leader, I mean, that is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring the vision. You're supposed to bring enthusiasm. You're supposed to bring passion. But her passion bias actually made it more difficult for her to see other people weren't, they weren't on board. She was 10 steps ahead of them. And the mindfulness training enabled her to, one, realize, okay, that's what's happening. It enabled her to be able to, slow down, to speed up, to really be able to take a couple steps back and say, okay, how do I need to show up differently to still get the same outcome, which is getting everybody on board and sharing the vision in a way that's going to be meaningful, but how do I need to show up differently to be able to help them get there so that they can create that journey for themselves as opposed to me just being off in the clouds from their perspective.
1: Yeah, you know, I want to talk about that because your your book is a wonderful combination of insights and practices. So, um, you know, how did you come up after each chapter? You have, you know, quick tips and reflections and you have some training practices in the book. It's very practical. How did you come up with it?
3: Sure, there's two different types of things that we have as as takeaways and wanting to make it practical and and easy for people to take away things. The first set of things that we have in the book is training tools to be basically able to go to the mind gym. Yep. So as we talked about, the mind is plastic. You can train your mind to be able to be more mindful. You can train your mind to be able to be more selfless and more compassionate. And in the book, we walk through, and these are these are time tested training techniques. We did not invent yeah. them. <laughs> these have been around for actually thousands of years, uh, and that have been developed specifically to to help us develop those qualities. And so those uh really are laid out and and just to just to be clear a lot of them are really simple and they can be you know just 2 minutes to 10 minutes a day of simply going to the mind gym and being intentional about what it is that you want to basically rewire your neural network mm-hmm. to be able to change how it works how it functions to be able to be whatever it is that you envision yourself as being your best self as a leader. In addition to that, we also wanted to provide some really simple practical tools because Mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion is also about not just who we are and how our mind works, but it's also about seeing ways to be able to bring those into our day-to-day leadership. So, you know, simple tool around mindfulness is, you know, turning off your phone in meetings, right, so that you're not distracted by it. Just, you know, simple ways in terms of selflessness is is having a gratitude practice, you know, taking a moment at the end of each day to just say, okay. Who are all the people that I know helped me be successful today? And who are all the people that I don't even know that helped me be successful today? And then maybe sending a couple of notes in gratitude. Mm-hmm. Similarly with compassion, really taking an opportunity and, and seeing ways to be able to find opportunities to, to be of benefit to others. And incorporating that, you know, a simple strategy. And this was again from the interviews that we had. Leaders that actually said to us when their their mantra – when they show up with a meeting with one of a member of their team, the first thing they say is, how can I be a benefit to you today? So it's simple, but it sets the intention and it makes it actually applicable in day-to-day leadership.
1: So, Jacqueline, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today that we've missed?
3: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we found and we were so inspired by in terms of the organizations that we saw – was organizations that are really putting their people first. Mm-hmm. So what we see as being people-centric organizations. Yes. And that to us was it's a it's an emerging trend and I think it's specifically the opposite of organizations that put shareholders first and for all those shareholders out there we <laughs> know that that's important. That's important. But really what we saw was organizations that recognized and, and Marriott is probably the best example of this. And what's amazing and the, the, the story of, uh, of Marriott and many people may know this, but, you know, starting out with J.W. Marriott and his, his wife, Alice, I mean, they actually had a sign in the first pop shop that they had was basically if we take care of our people, our, 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 our employees, they will take care of our clients and then business will take care of itself. And that was something that they found as a founding principle was that focusing on their people first, so being a truly people-centric organization, was the best strategy to have a successful business. And in the last, and it's really been just in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, there's been this tremendous shift on shareholder wealth. Mm -hmm. And what's been lost in that is you focus on shareholder wealth at the expense of employee health. You're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so what we're really inspired by is organizations that are really shifting that and saying, you know what? It may cost us in terms of you know the quarterly results, but it's better for our employees. And what's the best thing for our employees and taking care of our employees as being the first and foremost thing that they should do in an organization.
1: Why is gratitude an essential quality to be an effective leader today? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, leading through uncertain times. Gratitude is a mental state that A, you can most easily decide to feel, B, has the most immediate effect on improving your well-being, and C, is going to have a remarkable impact on your ability to lead other people. The challenge is to remember to just do it. Chester Elton, co-author of Leading with Gratitude, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to discuss this subject and to talk about how important it is for leaders to lead today with gratitude. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. So Chester, why is gratitude, especially today, an essential quality for an effective leader?
4: You know, we've been doing a lot of research, you know, real time on how do you lead through a crisis? And of course, you can't lead effectively through a crisis if you don't have credibility before the crisis, right? Like, well, trust me now. Well, I didn't trust you before. Why would I trust you now? You know, those kinds of things. Two things that we found that you really have to amplify and ramp up is communication right because in a in a communication void uh, fear fills that void right and the second is gratitude this idea of filling the void with with hope and gratitude and celebrating little wins along the way it's really interesting it's it's often seen as a soft skill and a nice to have i'm telling you it's absolutely and the numbers bear it out you know we have a, an enormous database that we draw off of is that it's not a soft skill, it's a hard skill, and it is not a nice to have, it's a must have, especially when you're going through hard times. People need to be informed and they need to feel valued, and communication and gratitude check both those boxes.
1: Your book, Chester, uh, does a wonderful job of providing practical uh, advice and uh, and guidance. And uh, so, so why is it so important to create triggers in your work and in your life as a leader, to remember to focus on gratitude.
4: You know, and I love the triggers. You know, we got that from our good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, who's this incredibly um, effective and famous executive coach. He says, create triggers just as reminders. We all get busy. We all get, you know, I've got to check the boxes. We're doing hard things today. And I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm doing more with less. You know, this is unprecedented times. The triggers help remind you to do those things every day that build the culture that you want and that create the right relationships you want. I'll give you a perfect example. We have uh, Carlos Aguilera is one of our, our favorite executives for Avis Budget Rental Car in Dallas, Texas. And one of the triggers that he sets up for himself is he puts 10 coins in his left pocket. And it reminds him to have 10 positive interactions with his people every day. And the way he keeps track is he moves a penny from his left pocket to his right pocket. A simple little trigger. And it's really interesting as as we were interviewing him for our book, All in, which was all about culture, He said, "You know, it's interesting, if I get to lunch and I've got eight pennies in my left pocket, I'm not doing my job. That simple trigger, that simple reminder, really effective, don't you think? So Chester, as I was reading your book, I was wondering, to what
1: extent do we need a societal mind shift on gratitude? And what would that mind shift entail?
4: Well, yeah, it's, 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 again, you know, I was just having a conversation that, you know, one of the things I hope happens post-virus is that we're all more grateful, that we're more kind, and we're more patient. You know, it's, it, it's really interesting. I think the shift needs to happen, that we've really got to believe that we finally have to believe the numbers, that, you know, in the States, only about a third of people And in many cases, less than 30% get up in the morning and are excited to go to work. And, you know, that's a failure in leadership. Globally, it's even higher. It's, you know, 85% of, of people in the world say that they're either disengaged or actively disengaged at work. Well, think of the productivity loss think of the productivity loss, right? So you've got to finally believe the numbers and the shift has to be this. And I get this all the time, Michael. So, you know, we, we coach executives, right? They get their 360. Almost always, you know, gratitude recognition shows up in the bottom third, if not the bottom two or three. And as you talk to these executives, they'll say, well, I, I would do it more often, but I, you know, I, I, the people think I'm soft and, and, and you can overdo it. I love that one. You can overdo it. It becomes trite and it becomes, you know, it loses its meaning. And I said, okay, now you've seen your 360, right? I want you to ask yourself, what was the last time you think anybody from your team went home and said to their spouse, their partner, their family, man, I just couldn't get anything done today. Like seriously, every time I turned around, it was like a cake, a thank you card. They were calling me in. They were praising me. There was spotlights. There was fireworks. I got to start working from home. Like that never, ever happens. And by the way, if you think you can overdo it as a leader, that leader is not you okay so put that out of your head so that 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 mental shift has to be look i I had a wonderful leader say you know what in my opinion if you think you're overdoing gratitude and recognition you're probably about right that's the shift that needs to happen
1: chester you point out that managers who lack gratitude suffer first and foremost from a problem of cognition which i found very interesting I would hope that you would elaborate on that and to what extent do ungrateful leaders suffer from an information deficit?
4: You know, you know, they're kind of tied together, right? Uh, they're, they're not getting the right information. They're not looking for the right information. You know, we say, uh, you know, seek out information, seek out, uh, you know, have people tell you what they're doing, have your team uh, look around, you know, as leaders, we can't always see what's going on. And they're, they're, they're getting a lot of information about maybe maybe products and services and customers they're not getting the information about their team that they need to put people in a position to succeed and it, and it is really interesting when you talk about that information deficit you know today people say look there's an information overload and there's no question about that so in your filters are you getting the right information and and too often leaders do not look for, the really important information about their team. What motivates them? What engages them at work? You know, what are, what are some of the roadblocks to them being more effective? You know, I love leaders that ask a couple of questions and they're very simple. Again, it's all very simple, right? Is how, how are you doing now? And I think in the virus, it's not just how are you doing, it's how are you doing now? Because you know, you can have some information pop up on your phone and I'm like everybody else. I go from ridiculously hopeful to absolutely terrified in 30 seconds, So I wanna know how are you doing now? And then secondly, how can I help? That, That question from leaders is really important. So I get where you are, how can I help? And that allows you to really collect all the right information about where they are emotionally, where they are in their tasks and their and their assignments, where they are in a customer relationship and how you can help and help them celebrate along the way. I know that was a long answer, hopefully it made sense.
1: One of the things people get confused about is they see gratitude as simply being nice. How is gratitude more than simply being nice and can leaders who express gratitude also be demanding? And uh, perhaps you could illustrate the difference between niceness and gratitude, referencing some of the leaders you profile in your book.
4: Yeah, I think the the perfect example of being incredibly demanding and yet using gratitude every step of the way is Alan Mulally, who, you know, in the last recession, saved the Ford Motor Company. Wonderful book, by the way, called American Icon. If if you're a big reader, it's fascinating. Great, an audio book as well. Well, we got to know Alan quite well, and uh, he he is nice. I mean, he's a very nice gentleman. I mean, if you met him, he's a lot of fun, great smile, very engaging. As a leader, incredibly demanding, incredible, you know, very, very accountability, first and foremost. He would check in with his leaders every week at Ford, and as it started getting crazy, they would have a check-in every day, and they would check the boxes. Is it green, yellow, or red? How are we doing? Where do we need help? Where do we need resources? And so on and so on. Now, make no mistake about it, Um, people do perceive, if it's a grateful leader or a nice leader, that they are soft. Alan Mulally is anything but soft. Now, they wrote about him in in the press in Detroit saying he had a spine of titanium, right? I mean, this is the automotive industry, you know, eat what you kill. And the way he used gratitude... And and recognition throughout that whole process was phenomenal, celebrating all the little wins along the way, really thanking people for showing up and going the extra mile. When he got to Ford Motor Company, their engagement scores were 20 percent. 20 percent of it, only two out of 10 people were showing up thinking this was a great place to work. When he left, it was over 90 percent. Incredibly demanding. Holding his people accountable and at the same time celebrating along the way. Uh, Ken Chenault, the retired uh, CEO from American Express, same way, very demanding. And yet his people loved him because he was so grateful for their efforts. And he knew he was demanding, he knew he was asking a lot. And when they delivered, he was especially grateful for the outcomes. So, yes, I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> It is not a, It is not an indicator of a soft leader. I think it's an indication of a really engaged leader and a leader that really wants to not only succeed, wants his whole team to succeed.
1: Chester, your book, Leading with Gratitude, outlines eight most effective approaches found by for showing gratitude in our work. Before we delve into each practice, uh, why did you group these concepts into two categories, seeing and expressing?
4: Because it is different, you know. It's it's kind of that information deficit that we talk about. If you don't see what's going on, if you don't have that input, how can you possibly express gratitude in a way that's meaningful, right? Yeah, you know, we talk about call your crazies. You know, my first one and best practice in seeing is solicit and act on input. Hey, what are you seeing out there? What's going on? Tell me about what our customers are saying. Tell me about you know you, you you've used our products. Tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And, and, and we've already talked about assume positive intent, which is one of my favorites, by the way. And that's why I hope at the end of the virus that we are more grateful, that we are more kind, and we're more patient, right? Be more patient. Now, walk in their shoes. Look, you know, so often frustration sets in when somebody says, so where did that quota come from? Well, it came from corporate. Well, does corporate have any idea that that is an absolutely ridiculous quota? says they may or they may not. All I know is that's my quota, <laughs> right? So they have no idea that, you know, uh, we just had a Chernobyl uh, hit here and, uh, you know, nobody's going outside kind of thing. And then they look for small wins, you know. So, so often leaders go, well, yeah, look, when when we hit the goal, we'll celebrate. Oh, big time. You know, there'll be an open bar and, you know, there'll be music. It'll be crazy. Well, you know, I, I often ask those leaders say, well, don't you think it's important to celebrate small wins along the way? So, well, why? The goal is the big win. And I'll ask him a simple question. I'll say, "Look, are you a sports fan?" And you know most people have some team they cheer for. I say, "Great, great. So, they'll say, "Well, I, you know, I'm a I'm a Manchester United, you know, football fan." I say, "Great. Have you ever been to a match?" I go, "Yeah, yeah." So, when do you start cheering for Manchester United?" He goes, "Oh, on the way to the match." I go, "Oh, yeah, the march to the match." You're screaming and yelling, and uh, before the whistle, oh yeah, we get together with our team, and then you know when the, the, the game starts, we cheer and scream, and a, a good pass and a good defense, and of course we cheer the goals. I said, great, I'm surprised. And they say, why? I said, well, I would think you'd want to wait to see the final score before you cheer. <laughs> and they go, well, that's ridiculous. I go, can you connect the dots for me now on this one? You know, of course, we cheer along the way. If you've got kids that play sports, you know, you, you cheer that they got the cleats on the right feet, you know. So that, you know, celebrating builds momentum. And that's really the message. Celebrating those small wins builds momentum. We're doing this right. We're doing this right. It's, it's moving the ball down the field. It's, You know, it's, it's getting us closer to the goal. It's, you know, that's a little better customer satisfaction score so that you build momentum so that you can hit that big goal. So that's why the seeing is so important. You know, you're walking in their shoes. You're looking for those small wins. You're you're, you're being patient. You're assuming positive intent and you're asking for their input. Well, once you've got all that, expressing becomes a lot easier, don't you think?
1: What is ruthless consistency and how can it make you a better leader? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, leading through uncertain times. This year's unprecedented turmoil has put every leader to the test. The need for focus, alignment, and execution is greater than ever. To adapt, it takes more than just the will to win. It demands the will to do what it takes to win. This is no time for wavering or wobbling. This is a time for ruthless consistency. To be ruthlessly consistent, an effective leader has to do three things, according to author Michael Kanick. Develop the right focus, create the right environment, and build the right team and most of all, do all three consistently. Dr. Kanek joined me on the Business of Government Hour to discuss Ruthless Consistency. Here's an
5: excerpt of our conversation.
1: What prompted you to write Ruthless Consistency,
5: and what do you mean? Well, in a word, failure. Seeing the ongoing failure rate of, of strategic change initiatives. You know, the companies have good intentions, good ideas, good you know good plans, but the execution is the hard part. And the research has shown that in the past 40 years, roughly, failure rates for these major initiatives continue to be around 60 to 70%. So given that's the reality, and my world has been developing and executing strategy with companies over the past you know, 20 years, I really wanted to pass on some of the things that I have found have been very successful in implementing strategic change.
1: As a follow-up, being consistent sounds simple. Why isn't it? And taken too far, doesn't consistency Mean being inflexible? Where is there room for creativity and innovation if you're ruthlessly consistent?
5: Right, right. Well, to your first point, it does sound simple. You know, just be consistent. What makes it difficult, of course, is that as a leader, you're on stage 24 seven and people are reading meaning into everything you say, everything you do, everything you don't say, you don't do. You're on stage so you've got to be very careful am I sending consistent messages because people will pick up on the inconsistencies in, in a heartbeat. Now when you ask you know doesn't it mean being inf- could it mean being inflexible? well by ruthless consistency I don't mean, I don't mean robotic repetition. you know this isn't about mindless and mechanical activity uh, just for the sake of being consistent. what I'm really talking about is a ruthless consistency of purpose. One that's constantly projected in your decisions, your actions, because it's the relentless alignment of decisions, actions, and intentions that really is the foundation of success. So let me give you an example. Let's say you want to build a culture of innovation, for example. Okay. Well, how does innovation, you know, how, how does that align with the idea of consistency? Well, a ruthless consistency of purpose means everything we do needs to support a culture of innovation. So that means how we you know, communicate to people, how we train them, what resources we give them, what we measure, the goals we set. And we want to create an environment where everything points them towards innovation. And to be successful, frankly, you know, innovation isn't contrary or ruthless consistency, it's really a requirement in today's business. To achieve your purpose, you can't be static. You've got to evolve, you've got to grow, you've got to try new things, you've got to experiment. Innovation and creativity is part of how you achieve that consistency of purpose. So again, it's not about robotic repetition. It's really about you know making sure that everything we do, as creative and innovative as that might be, is consistently aligned with your purpose, your intentions.
1: Uh, so, Michael, why should leaders embrace strategic management and forego strategic planning? And what do you mean by strategic management and how is it a more comprehensive and far more robust approach to developing and sustaining focus for a leader?
5: Yes, that's a very good question. And I can tell you from my experience years ago, I, I ran the consulting division of the Atlanta Consulting Group, and we would do strategic planning for companies. So typically mid-market companies, we would go in, leave them through this strategic exercise a plan would be developed, their team would be all amped up, ready to go conquer the world. We'd ride off to, into the sunset, you know, mission accomplished. They would invite us back next year and say, help us with our plan, you know, this year. And we would, of course, ask, okay, what got accomplished last year? Well, you know, that's when the wringing of the hands started, the shuffling of the feet and people would look aside. Well, you know, we kind of got busy and this and that. Well, the reality is not a lot got done. And when I got into the research, what I found is that that's not uncommon. That's the reality of strategic planning. Most strategic planning initiatives fail. The figures are something like 70 to 90% of strategic planning initiatives fail to deliver on their promise. So, of course, the question is why. And I think the number one reason is we treat strategy as an event, not a process. We think of strategic planning as an event. We put the focus on the word planning, and planning does what? It develops a plan. Or we think of the plan, the document. It's not about developing a plan. It's about getting results. So that's when I developed what I call the strategic management process, which treats strategy as an ongoing process. It's not an event. It's ongoing. It's a process. It has to be managed. It's not going to implement itself. And when the strategic management process is the overarching process for your organization mapped to the fiscal year, and that includes, you know, from the front end assessment and development of the plan, but the mechanisms to make sure that we execute what needs to get done, that's a much more robust approach to, you know, sustaining focus. So really, it's about a process, not an event. And I, I tell my clients, Michael, I say, don't even say the word strategic planning, because when you say that, what do you think of? The plan, the planning, right? Say strategic management, exactly. Say strategic management, and you're going to think, how do we manage our business strategically to achieve what we need to achieve?
1: So, Michael, you point out, I mean, it's very practical, some of the insights you offer in your book, saying that everything needs to be consistently aligned is one thing, but doing it is another. To be ruthlessly consistent, three things must be done, you point out. What are
5: those three things that must be done? Right. So the three things to be ruthlessly consistent is that leaders need to develop the right focus, create the right environment, and build the right team. And every strategic change initiative, Michael, I have seen, I have led, I have read about, I have come across, it always comes down to those three things. Have we developed the right focus? Have we created the right environment? so that people can execute on it, and have we built the right team? And what makes it tough is that it takes all three. You know, if we have the right focus and the right team, but we put them in the wrong environment, well, we demotivate those good people. If we have the right focus and right environment, but with the wrong team, they can't get it done. And if we have the right team in the right environment, but with the wrong focus, well, they do a great job going in the wrong direction. So it takes all three. We have to develop the right focus, create the right environment, build the right team. And the model of ruthless consistency really is focused on those three things. And then when leaders have the right commitment to fuel it, now we can be successful. Now we can get things done.
1: In your book, Ruthless Consistency, you reference the cult of leadership. My show, we focus on uh, leadership and, and in particular, how to enhance government leadership So I was particularly interested in this, this aspect of your book. If there's one thing you could sear into the minds of of our listeners about leadership, what would
5: that be? It would be that it's not about you. It's through you. It's not about you. It's through you. Get over yourself as a leader. I think it was John Maxwell who said, you know, if you think you're leading, but no one's following, you're really just going for a walk you know, so it's not about you. And too often, and you know, leaders can be forgiven for thinking it's about them. Because again, there are a lot of books on leadership, what great leaders have done, what you need to do. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do. It's got to be about your people. They're the ones who are implementing the change. They're doing the real work. They're executing the strategy. It's not the CEO who's running around and doing the details of everything. It's his or her people. So if there's one thing, again, I'd sear into your mind as a leader, it's not about you, it's only through you. And if you can get over your ego and realize you're just the enabler of all this, your role is to create the environment, to build the team, and to you know, develop the focus so that that team then can go ahead and win.
1: Excellent insight, Michael. I, I found it very provocative and very important. Um, what drives an organization to change and what are the two fundamental drivers of change?
5: Right so if you look at the, again what when organizations are successful or not successful often the successful organizations have a strong vision or ambition so they're very motivated towards achievement but then in most cases what you know prompts change is pain Something very painful is happening. We're losing market share. We have a lot of losing key customers. Um, The global pandemic, you know, that we're experiencing right now. Pain is a great motivator. And what I found is that most companies historically have focused on the gain side, and they'll come up with a vision statement. They'll come up with a big audacious goal. But then nothing happens. Why? Because that vision or that goal is a nice to do. It wasn't a must do. What I've found is much more reliable in predicting change is if organizations develop both that pain statement and the gain statement. It's the pairing of the two. Here's the pain we're going to suffer if we don't change, and here's the gain we're going to benefit if we do change. And so by pairing those two fundamental drivers together, that ends up pr- uh, producing a much more compelling case for change. And I tell you, that's that really provides the impetus that, that sustains the change effort. You know, across the year.
1: Michael, uh, we are in the midst of a, of a pandemic response. And um, how important is ruthless consistency for leaders during today's crisis?
5: Yeah. And this is very important. Having that ruthless consistency of purpose is even more important now. And you have to be even more painstaking in being consistent. Why? Because people are anxious. Your people are confused. Right, they're not sure what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen, so it's especially important you're consistent in communicating with your people. And the term I like to use, Michael, is to overcommunicate during times of change or overcommunicate during times of crisis, because people need to know, you know, not just where are we going, not just how, but why. Why are we changing to this? What does it mean for me? How are we going to support you? We need to be ruthlessly consistent in valuing people and making sure they know we appreciate them. They're playing a valuable role, right? They belong, they're doing something that's meaningful. It's especially important we're consistent in valuing people now. And it's especially important that we're consistent in providing people with the tools and the information to do the job. Because the anxiety is people's roles have had to shift. Maybe they're doing some things, they have to do some different things than before. Maybe some of the things they used to do have gone away. So we've got to make sure we're very consistent in providing people whatever tools and information they need, given the new reality. So in times of change, Michael, ruthless consistency is even more important because if you don't do that, you risk demotivating people who are already anxious, already confused, and then you end up with a very bad situation.
1: So Michael, what is the first thing a leader can do to become ruthlessly consistent? (laughs)
5: Well, look in the mirror, be honest with yourself, you know, and ask yourself, how committed am I to winning? Am I willing to do what it takes to win? Because I'll tell you, one of the things I learned in coaching, Michael, and this is an old coaching adage, there is a big difference between the will to win and the will to do what it takes to win. And you better understand that difference. Everybody wants to win. They want to say they want to be a part of a winner. Are they willing to do what it takes? And often that means doing what you don't want to do or don't like to do, but knowing that you must do if you're going to be successful. So as a first step, I just say with leaders, be very honest with yourself. There's no right or wrong answer. Start with an honest assessment. How committed am I to winning?
1: This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour leading through uncertain times, exploring the qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset leaders from all sectors may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. The authors and thinkers in this episode offer insights and advice applicable to all sectors, including the public sector. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.